Amen. Well, we're starting a new year. I guess we've already started, but this is my first Sunday back in a couple of weeks. So it's a new year. And this Wednesday, six o'clock in this room, we're going to have an all church prayer meeting. People who believe in God pray. People who believe God can do great things pray with great faith and earnestness. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to come and it's a time of intercession. We're going to be praying for people. We're going to be praying for ministries. We're going to be praying for our community. And we're going to believe God to do great and marvelous things. So that's six o'clock. We're going to have an hour of prayer right here. I hope that you'll be here. Make a special effort to be here. We need nothing more in this time than to pray. And so I want to invite you to come to that. And starting off this year, I want to begin a series of four messages on a really important topic, and that is the goodness of God. That is a bedrock truth in the Christian faith. The person who knows that God is good lives a life that is qualitatively different than other people. They live with greater fearlessness and courage because they're not worried about what's going to come because they trust God. They know they can trust God. They live with a certain sense of adventure because God is at work and they know it. They live with a, a resilience when things are set against them because they know that God is good and that God is at work. So it's so important for us to know the goodness of God. And when I look back on my life, I feel sometimes like it's been this process of learning and relearning what it means to say God is good. When I was a young Christian, I was in a, I was in a really dark place for a period of time. I was so eager to serve God. I wanted to please God. And I sought him in prayer and I sought to obey him. And yet there was no joy. There was no peace. Somehow this newfound faith I had as a, as a 20-year-old new Christian, it, this newfound faith just didn't seem to be alive and strong in me. And then one day, by the grace of God, it just came to me. It was like a light was turned on and I realized that I wasn't seeing God as a good and loving father, but in fact, I was seeing God more like he was a Pharaoh and I was one of Pharaoh's slaves and he was making demands on me. God seemed distant. He seemed unconcerned. I would pray and he was silent I tried to serve him, but I knew I fell short. And so I had this sense of constant disapproval. And the light that came on was I realized that I was thinking of God more like I should be thinking of Satan. That's a pretty brazen way to put it, but that's the truth. I was thinking of God the way I should think of Satan. It's Satan who is hard. It's Satan who will crush people. What I learned that day was God is always a good God. And that changed my life, changed my life. And yet at the same time, I've had to learn and relearn that lesson. It seems like I'm always coming back to it. Always having to remind myself again that God is always good. One verse that helps me to hold on to that truth is found in James chapter one and in verse 17. Listen to what James says. 
Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. See, during the course of the day, the shadows will change, but God doesn't change. Every good and perfect gift continually overflows from the good Father's heart into our lives and into the world. God never changes. God is always a good God because God is deeply good. He is completely good. There is no dark place in him. There is no evil in him. God is good. And that means he is kind. God is benevolent. He has good will toward us. And because we are needy sinners, that goodwill we can call grace. God is a gracious God. God is a good God, always, all the time. No shifting shadows. Now, here's the problem we face. And that is circumstances do shift constantly. As the days wear on, there's always change. Some of those changes we like, a whole lot of them we don't like. And sometimes they can be extremely burdensome to us. They can break our heart. There are relationships that break up, families that break up. There are illnesses that people contract. There are tragedies that take place. In our church family, just about everything you can imagine has happened to somebody. Just about everything you can happen. I mean, from... from a loved one dying through drug addiction, to suicide, to terrible accidents, to depressions. I mean, people face difficult times. And so the circumstances of our life always are shifting like the shadows. And yet, according to the scripture, God's goodness does not change. What I experience in life changes all the time, but God's goodness does not change. And here's the trouble. The trouble is we tend to interpret God through the experience and we begin to think God is against us or God is indifferent. And that's where I was many, many years ago. And what changed my life was when I realized God is always a good God, even when it seems like God is not with us and God is not concerned. The way you might look at it is like this. Lots of bad things happen in life, but God rules and overrules all of them for our good because he is good. Most of you know the story of Joseph, I think. If you don't know the story of Joseph, you need to go back to the book of Genesis and you need to read the story. It's a great story. It's about a young man who was his father's favorite. And because he was his father's favorite, he was not his brother's favorite. They were jealous of him. And out of their jealousy, they did an incredible thing. They sold Jacob, or rather Joseph, to a traveling band of traders. And, and they, they took him into slavery, brought him down to Egypt, and sold him there. And so Joseph is alone, separated from his family. He's now a slave in Egypt. And yet he did not give up did not lose his faith. He crawled out of that hole until finally he became the right-hand man for a high official in Egypt. 
It looked as if the story had a happy ending, but then, then he is falsely accused of a crime and thrown back in prison. You have to imagine what Joseph thought when he's thrown back in prison. God, God, I I remain faithful through it all. And just when it looked like I was overcoming the betrayal of my family, here I am in prison again. And yet, an extraordinary intervention by God, Joseph is actually raised up out of prison and becomes the right-hand man now for Pharaoh. And he's over all the country, and he's storing up grain because God told him there would be a famine. And there was a famine. Egypt had lots of grain, but Canaan did not. And so it ended up that Jacob, Joseph's father, and all of Joseph's brothers with their people came down to Egypt for food. They got the food because Joseph was there waiting for them. Now, when Jacob died, the brothers were terrified because they thought, you know, what's Joseph going to do for us now? He, he hasn't harmed us because, because of our father, but now that he's gone, what will Joseph do? And Joseph said to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what has been done, the saving of many lives. In other words, all these terrible things that happened in my life, you intended them for evil. And they brought great suffering on Joseph, no doubt about it. And it looked as if God had turned his back on that young man, no doubt about it. But in hindsight, Joseph could say, what you intended for evil, what looked like was God's uh, what the events of God's abandonment were in fact God working out his good purpose. God had a plan. It wasn't Joseph's plan. Just like it's not your plan, some of the setbacks you encounter, some of the hardships you endure. It's not your plan, but God had a plan for Joseph. God has a plan for you. God is always a good God and he's always ruling and overruling everything in your life that you might be blessed in the end. You have to take the long view. You have to take the long view. Not just the moment, you have to take the long view. Sometime before Jesus was born, there was a young priest named Zachariah, and he married a young woman from a priestly family. Her name was Elizabeth. And when they got married, you know, they had all the same hopes and dreams of other young Jewish couples. They dreamed of having a family. That was important. That's important for people today, but it was so much more important then to have children. Everyone expected that you would have children. And yet year came and year went and still Zachariah and Elizabeth had no child. I don't know if you know anyone, a woman who's tried to have a child, a couple trying to have children, haven't been able to, and you, you've known some of the pain that they've gone through. Some of you may be in that situation. That's what they were going through, only perhaps more intensely so because there was a stigma attached to childlessness. I don't want to exaggerate it. People weren't cruel and hateful, but it would enter people's minds at that time. If you're pleasing God, 
Why are you without children? God wants you to have children. God promises children to his people, and you have no child. So there was this sense that something wasn't quite right. And you can imagine for Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're seeking to serve God. We know from the Bible that they were godly people. And they're trying to please God, but they have to wonder, where is God? Why don't we have children? Have we done something wrong? God seems far away, silent. We pray and nothing happens. And this goes on year after year. And then first one decade and then another. Finally, they pass the time when children are even a possibility. And they have to reconcile with that as best they can. You know what? Sometimes in life we have to do that. We have to accept, we have to accept things are as they are. And we have to go on. And that's what Zachariah and Elizabeth did. They remained faithful to God. But there was always, surely there was always this, this hint of sadness about their unfulfilled dream and hope. That's not an uncommon experience. Well, one day, Zachariah, the old man now, the lots are cast and he as priest has been selected to go to the, into the temple and offer up the incense at the altar, which he does. And while he's there, Gabriel, the angel, appears to him and says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer? <laughs> Which prayer would that be? You mean the prayer I prayed 40 years ago? Is that the one we're talking about here? The angel says, your prayer has been heard and God is going to answer it now. Elizabeth will bear a child and you will have a son. You will name him John. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from before his birth and he will be a prophet of the Most High. He will go before Messiah to prepare the way for Messiah. This was such an astonishing, wonderful message. Zachariah couldn't even believe it. He said, how do I know this is going to happen? I can't believe this is going to happen. Listen, he's prayed about this for years. He'd finally stopped praying and now he's told he's going to get it. Of course, it sounded unbelievable. But the angel said, yeah, it's going to happen. And in fact, here's a sign for you. It's going to happen. You're not going to be able to speak till it does. And so this Extraordinary miracle takes place for Zachariah and Elizabeth, but only after decades of waiting, only after decades of wondering if God had ever heard their prayer, only after decades of longing to have a son or a daughter, just to have a child. But the thing is interesting when you think about it, the delay was part of the answer. The delay was part of the answer because they received this extraordinary miracle. It wasn't yet time for John to be born, but God had chosen them to be the parents for John. And so the delay was part of this miraculous answer. It becomes part of the blessing. But who would have thought 30 years before? Who would have thought? It's not the way it looked 30 years before. And that's the way it is. God is always a good God, but it doesn't always look that way. I sat in a little breakfast seating area 
a friend of mine. Uh, actually, it was his father's house. His father had just passed away. And I went by the house to see him, and we sat at this old wooden table that had seen a lot of life. I mean, you could see the, you could see the life of children and grandchildren kind of chiseled into that table. And we were sitting there, and I was just trying my best to encourage him, mostly just by being there. He had been through so much. The whole family had been through so much. His father had just died. His mother had died not long before that. His sister-in-law had died in between the two. Um, the family had faced some other really serious, difficult trials. This was, this was a load on him. So I'm, I, I go to see him, and we're sitting at the table, and he's... He's sitting at the end of the table, and he says, you know, talking about his dad, Pops used to sit here every single morning. He said every morning he'd sit right here, and he'd study his Bible. He reached over and took his dad's Bible and opened it, just as his dad had done for years and years and years. He opens his Bible, and it's just covered with, you know, it's underlined and notes and highlighted everywhere. He turns over a few pages, and he goes to that familiar verse, Romans 8, 28. In everything, God works for the good of those who love him. My friend said, you know, it says in everything, in everything, not just the good things, but everything. And he started getting himself worked up. In fact, in fact, he, he just focused on me and started raising his voice just a little, and I kind of felt like he was preaching at me. But I know he was preaching to himself. He was trying to strengthen his own faith. He said, you know, it says everything. And he asked me, he said, what doesn't fall within everything? Do you know anything that doesn't fit into all things? Of course, I didn't. He goes, it's all things, the good things, the bad things, all things. What makes you think? He said you, but he just meant everyone. What makes you think that this verse doesn't apply to you? What makes you think that what happens to you isn't one of the all things? He's going on and on. And he says, I can trust God. I can trust God that in all things, God's working for good. Now, he was preaching to himself, but it felt like he was preaching to me. And I can tell you, it was a sermon I needed to hear. And it's a sermon I've often reflected on in the days since, the years since. God is always a good God. And in all things, the good God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, there is no shifting of shadow. Every good and perfect gift is just flowing, overflowing from the deep goodness of God, even if it doesn't look like it. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible is from the prophet Isaiah, Israel is in exile. They are in Babylon. And that's because they had sinned against God. And when they're taken into exile, it looks like it's going to be the end of Israel. Nations in the ancient world, when they were taken from their homeland and 
transported somewhere else. That was done to break them. And it always worked. It always worked. When nations were, were sent into exile, they didn't come back home. They weren't reconstituted. That's not something that happened. Israel was finished. Or so you would think. So you would think. By any human reckoning, that was a certainty. Israel was finished. And so here are the people who are in mourning. They are suffering in their exile and they know they deserve it. Have you ever suffered and you knew you deserved it? You brought it on yourself. They knew they deserved it. They brought it on themselves. So they felt like they had no future. And this wasn't good that was happening to them. But is it possible that the good and gracious God could overrule even their sin and their exile and bring about good through it? Is that possible? God, through Isaiah, tells them that it is. He tells them they do have a future. And what he says to Israel, he says to everyone who looks to God for help in their time of need. God says in Isaiah 40, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flame will not kindle upon you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I love that. I love that. Might you go through the flood? Yes. Might you walk through the fire? Yes. Will you be destroyed by that? You look to God and God will bring you through the good and gracious God. That doesn't always look that way. And we can get ourselves in a really bad place when we start interpreting God and who God is based on what we're experiencing right now. See, we don't have a broad enough point of view. If we're standing back and we're having the long point of view and we can see things from the vantage point of eternity, then we could judge God by what happens. But when we're in the midst of the story and it hasn't played out yet, and we just see individual things happening, then we can't judge God by what happens because we'll misjudge him and we'll misunderstand. Somebody whose life story teaches this is a man named William Cooper. I don't know if you've ever heard of William Cooper. In the 18th century, he was perhaps the most popular poet in England. Now, we don't, we don't really read poets much anymore, um, really, poets at that time sort of had the role of a singer-songwriter in our day. The only poet I know is, is Chris, Chris Womack, who often writes his poems while I'm preaching. I have ambivalent feelings about that <laughs> because the poems always have something to do about the sermon, and they're always quite good. But I kind of wonder, what do you, do? so if you're writing the poem, are you really listening to the sermon? <laughs> you're not writing one right now, are you, Chris? Okay. But he does. He does. And, and so, so William Cooper, it's actually spelled C-O-W-E-R or C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's Cooper is how it's pronounced. William Cooper wrote many 
poems that were popular, and he wrote hymns. One hymn that maybe you've heard before, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Have you heard that old hymn? Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. William Cooper wrote that. Um, He wrote a poem called The Negro's Complaint. See, he was involved in the abolitionist movement um, where, where he, along with others, were lobbying the British government to put an end to the slave trade. He wrote that poem, and interestingly enough, a couple hundred years later, Martin Luther King Jr. would often quote it in his speeches when he was speaking various places during the civil rights movement. So he's a remarkable man and a remarkably gifted man who had a gift for lifting people because he would write out of his experience and he was someone who knew what depression was, who knew what sorrow was. And so he could give words to that, but also fill those words with faith and people would recognize their own pain and be inspired by his faith and rise up and continue to follow Christ. But it was not an easy road for him. It was not an easy road. He wasn't raised as a Christian, or I shouldn't say that. His father actually was a a minister, but he himself was not converted until he was in his 20s. He studied law and he practiced law for a period of time. But then as a young man, he collapsed in a terrible depression. Depression ran in his family tree. And in fact, uh, some scholars think that he perhaps suffered from bipolar depression. It certainly came on at an age where you would expect that to possibly be the case. So he falls into a depression. He's actually institutionalized. Um, and, And he came under the care of a physician who was also a Christian. And it was then that he became a Christian. He became a follower of Jesus. And it took a year, but he he rose up out of that and began to follow Jesus. And it was then, sometime after that, that he became friends with a man named John Newton. John Newton was the one who wrote Amazing Grace. That him? John Newton was a former slave trader, and they worked together in the abolitionist movement. But they were friends. Newton pastored a church, and William Cooper would help him in ministering in that church. Together they wrote hymns. They published a very well-known collection of hymns that that was sung for many, many years in Great Britain. And things seemed to be going well for him. But depression was always there, just kind of in the shadows, like it was always ready to leap. And some 10 years after that terrible episode he had, he started feeling it coming on again. There were some losses and grief that he went through. There were other problems that he had. One day, one day he's walking through a field and he had a premonition that darkness was about to engulf him. At the same time, clouds were blowing in. A storm was about to hit. He hurried home to avoid the storm. And at that moment, as soon as he got home, he wrote the hymn that is still sung in some places around the world. God moves in a mysterious way is the name of the hymn. He wrote that hymn at that moment and he held on to it 
for the next year as he lapsed into the worst depression of his life. He had a dream in which God said to him that he would be damned forever. He had been rejected. And so he thought, he felt like he would be rejected by God. He was in this dark place and he was holding on to the very words that he had written just before the depression washed over him. Those truths got him through. He emerged out of that, recovered, and in fact, he entered into the most fruitful period of his life. But I'm telling you all this because I want you to know the words I'm about to read to you These aren't just happy words that were written after somebody went through a mild case of sadness and then everything came together and all was fine. This was a man who knew what it was to be institutionalized with what we would call clinical depression. A man who wrote a hymn stating his faith in the face of of the things that were weighing him down, but a man who had to hold on to his own words through yet another season of depression. You know, this is 18th century poetry. It has kind of a quaint sound to it. I know that. It doesn't read like something we would write today. But I think that we can relate to a person who's been through the sorts of things he's been through. And I want you to hear what he writes. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides the smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. That last stanza makes the point I was making a moment before. He's saying that unbelief looks and scans the events of life and tries to see the mind of God and the character of God and what's happening. And he says, when someone does that, they are sure to make a terrible mistake. If you try to interpret God by what you see, you're going to misinterpret God. It says God is his own interpreter. He's talking about the scriptures. You want to know who God is? You look to the scriptures. And the scriptures tell us that God is always a good God. And you interpret what you experience through that truth. Even though you don't understand it, you hold on to it. And you know 
that behind the frowning providence, behind the things that seem to suggest God doesn't care, or even that God is angry, behind that there is the smiling face of a gracious and good God who is going to see you through. He is going to see you through. You have to take the long view your whole life, and then even beyond that to eternity. But if you do, you'll see it. You'll see it. Don't forget the cross. Don't forget the cross. Don't forget that Jesus Christ carried a cross and he hung on that cross and died for us. Thus is the love of God. Amen? That's the love of God. When, when you're pressured, that's when you're at your worst. Isn't that true? That's when you're at your work. When you're pressure, when you're burdened, that's when you snap at people. That's when you think only about yourself. So here's Jesus hanging on the cross. He is being crushed in the crucifixion. And what does Jesus do? He prays, Father, forgive them. What does Jesus do? He assures a thief that he will have everlasting life in paradise. He sees John and his mother, and he indicates to John, I want you to take her into your home. Mother, John is your son now. He's concerned for them. Out of the heart of Christ, who's being crushed, flows goodness, flows goodness, because there's nothing but goodness in God. So what I'd like to ask you to do is to hold on to that truth, to believe that truth. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what the psalmist said. Taste and see. If your heart has grown hard toward God because you have felt like his heart's toward, hard toward you, let that go. Put your faith in the God who has shown us who he is in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Let that go. Let him fill you with his spirit. It doesn't mean everything will just go well, easily, today or tomorrow, but God is always a good God. He'll never fail you in all things, all things, good and bad. God works for those who love him. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you are indeed a good God thoroughly good, completely good, always good, overflowing with good. It doesn't always seem like that, but we know that to be the truth. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to live in that truth. That's our prayer. That's our prayer. Give us faith. Help us to hold on to it. All of us, especially those who most need that now. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you stand with me? As we sing, you can receive Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. In many ways, the gospel is simply this. God is always a good God. He's a good God who sent you a Savior in Jesus Christ. If you need God's goodness in your life, you can receive that. After this service, as soon as it's over, I'm going to move to the front. And if you want to receive Christ, I'd like to pray with you. I'd like to talk with you. I can't promise you that everything will suddenly snap into place and that you won't have any problems, but I can promise you this. 
God is always good, and you'll experience that in your life. Amen. Let's worship together.